Whoever has ears, let them hear. Good morning. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Good to see you all. Good to see you all. I want to thank God for this opportunity. I uh, acknowledge, even in his absence, Pastor Hunter. Looking forward to his return next week. Um, thank God for the elders that make up the leadership of the church. And thankful, thankful to you, Northland, for having me again. I'm glad to be here and glad to share what thus saith the Lord. Amen? Amen, amen, amen. It's good to be here. Let's pray. Father, would you open our hearts that we might understand, open our eyes that we might see, open our ears that we might hear, and then convict us that we might live as we've never lived before. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have you ever been in an argument with someone and it becomes completely clear in the midst of the argument to everyone in the room, to all those witnessing, certainly to yourself, and even to the person you're arguing with, that you're right. It becomes completely clear to everyone that they're wrong and you're right. But they won't admit it. They won't open their mouths to say the words, I was and you were they don't, they don't get it, they just can't form their, and I'm not talking about something that's like subjective, like which TV show is better, NCIS or The Night Shift, not something subjective, I mean something objective that you can verify, like the distance from planet Earth to the sun, verifiable, objective. The number of Super Bowls a particular team has won, Objective, verifiable. I mean, you go and you get the encyclopedia. For you young people, those are really big books that sit on shelves. <laughs> Before we had Wikipedia. Encyclopedia, you get the encyclopedia, you crack it open to the solar system section, and you point out to them the distance between the Earth and the sun, and it turns out you were right, and they were off by a factor of 100. And even though it's there in black and white, they still won't admit it. They will not admit that they're wrong. Now, have you ever experienced that? Have you ever argued with someone like that? Maybe it's a person on your job who you argued with. Maybe it's a person in your house. Maybe they're sitting next to you right now. <laughs> or maybe you're that person. Oh. Well, here's the thing. I believe that there's a little bit or a lot of that person in all of us. We all want to be right, perhaps to different degrees, but the desire to be right is deeply embedded within us. It is the reason why we take our time before making a big decision. Should I buy this house or look for another? I don't want to be wrong. Should I take this job that has better pay or stay with the one I have that matches my life schedule? I don't want to be wrong. 
Should I attend this college that has the major I'm interested in or attend this college that has more majors in case I change my mind? I don't want to be wrong. As a matter of fact, I know that we want to be right because even after we've made the decision, we say, boy, I sure hope I made the right decision. Because we want to be right. And this desire to be right takes on an even more significant tone when we talk about being right with God. Because now we're talking about sin. And how do we get right with God when sin is our problem? What is the treatment for the sin condition? What is the therapeutic approach that would address this disease that's in each and every one of us? What is the prescription that we should take to be right? The drive to be right can take us in a number of different ways or to put it differently. The drive to be right can lead us to one of two prescriptions for the disease of sin that is in each of us. In the parable we're going to look at today, we're going to see these two prescriptions play out. Let's look at Luke chapter 18 verses 9 and 10. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now before we get much further in this passage, for many of us in the room who've been around a while, we already know who the bad guy is. Like we've, we've seen enough of Jesus's ministry and scripture to know that the Pharisee is the bad guy. Like the shields go up. I start reading these verses, you hear Pharisee, you hear parable, and you're like, he's going to mess up and that's not me. And so the shields go up and we protect ourselves from the conviction that is certainly on the way because we don't want to be the Pharisee, because we know the Pharisees during Jesus's ministry were a thorn in his side. They were troublemakers all the time. They were asking him questions, trying to get him to be tripped up and say something wrong, trying to get the people not to like him or love him as much as they did. They even plotted to kill Jesus. And so certainly, when I hear Pharisee come out of Jesus' mouth, I know who the bad guy is. And I don't want to be identified with him. But if I'm honest about it, just based on my circumstances and my background, I am more likely to be the Pharisee than the tax collector. The Pharisees were a strict religious group within Judaism during the time of Jesus. But check this out. They were respected by the common people as religious folks who knew their stuff. If you wanted to know how to live according to the law, you could ask a Pharisee. If you wanted to know how to give according to the law, you would ask a Pharisee. 
If you wanted to know how to pray so that God would hear you, you would ask a Pharisee. That's actually kind of my life. Like, if somebody wants to know how to live in a way that would be pleasing to God, they might ask me. If somebody wanted to know how to give in a way that is in, in accordance with God's word, they might ask me. If somebody wanted to know how to pray so that God would hear it, they might ask me. I'm much more likely to identify with the Pharisee than the tax collector. Because tax collectors in that day were considered by the common people as traitors against Israel. Because basically they cooperated with the Romans to take money from Israelites and give it to the evil empire of Rome. These Jewish tax collectors betrayed their own people in the eyes of the common man. And more than just being in allegiance with the evil empire that was oppressing them, tax collectors were also known to be dishonest and greedy. Because when you really owed $10 in tax, say, they would say you owed 15. They would take the 15 and give 10 to Rome and keep the five for themselves. The rabbis of the day considered tax collectors to be no better than robbers. So Jesus tells a parable. Two men went up to pray, a religious person and a robber. Now, who would we identify with? The people of the day certainly hearing Jesus's parable certainly knew the right answer was the Pharisee. That guy's gonna know how to pray. They went up to the temple to pray, clearly the Pharisee's gonna get it right. And so I want us to drop the shields, allow the meaning of this parable to really speak to us. Amen? Amen. So let's take a look at verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. If sin is the sickness of which we must be cured, the prescription that the Pharisee is taking is self-righteousness. If sin is the sickness of which we must be cured, the prescription the Pharisee is taking is self-righteousness. But the problem with this prescription is that self-righteousness is no medicine at all. In fact, it's a placebo. Do you know what a placebo is? A placebo is a substance that is believed to be medicine, but has no medicinal value. A substance that's believed to be medicine, but has no medicinal or therapeutic effects. 
It will often make you feel better even though it has no medicinal value. But it's really a psychological treatment more so than a physiological one. So a placebo is like taking a water pill or a sugar tablet for cancer or taking a water pill or a sugar tablet for leukemia. There is no therapeutic or medicinal effect of a water pill or a sugar tablet against cancer. But you start to feel better because you think you've taken medicine. And that is called the placebo effect. The problem with placebos is that if you're really sick and there is a medicine that can address your issue, a placebo, while it might make you feel better, does nothing to address the disease that is still spreading in your body. The danger of a placebo is you take it and think you're better, but in fact you're not. So my goal today in this message is to help you and help me diagnose if we are experiencing the placebo effects of self-righteousness. Amen? My goal is to help us diagnose if we are experiencing the placebo effect of self-righteousness. I want to play enough tapes in your mind. I want to give enough triggers today so that as you're walking through your daily life, today and tomorrow and the rest of this week and hopefully the rest of your life, that if you hear these tapes playing, you will realize, oh my, I am under the effect of a placebo, the placebo of self-righteousness. So let's take a look and see what the placebo effect looks like for the, the Pharisee. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. The first symptom of the placebo effect of self-righteousness is righteousness by comparison. If you find yourself comparing yourself to others to make yourself right, you might be suffering from the placebo effect. It kind of goes like this. I am right because everybody else is so jacked up. I'm right because those folks over there are ridiculously wrong. And when you look at them compared to me, man, I'm spotless relative to them. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers. The problem with righteousness by comparison is it's a sliding scale. And all you need to do to make it work for you is you slide the scale to the person or the group that you know you're better than. So the Pharisee picks extortioners, unjust and adulterers to slide his scale against them. And of course, he looks great compared to extortioners and adulterers. 
The problem with a sliding scale is, well, what if we slid the scale to a rabbi or a priest? How do you look now? Uh, let's not do that. Let me keep the scale where I want to keep it so I can feel good about myself. That's a placebo. There's an, a pastor and author named John Ortberg. He wrote a book called When the Game is Over, It All Goes Back in the Box. He has a really profound quote. It says, not only do we tend to keep score by comparing ourselves to others, but we tend to do it in the most self-serving ways. When it comes to affluence or wealth, for instance, we chronically compare ourselves with those just a little better off. This keeps us from gratitude. It also keeps our eyes off people who are under-resourced so that we don't have to think about our need to share. On the other hand, when it comes to ethical behavior, we all tend to compare ourselves to people we perceive to be lower than us in the morality, of th the morality ratings. We tend to make our ethical benchmark someone who is a little less moral than ourselves to give ourselves a higher score on integrity. Ouch. But man, is that true. Maybe, not, maybe I'm the only one. I'm sure I'm not. But it's true. When I find myself thinking about my finances and, you know, where they are and where they ought to be, I often feel like, man, you know, I'm just middle class. I wish I were upper middle class. I look at my boss. I wish I had his salary. Like, I'm not as rich as him. But when it comes to comparing myself to others as far as morality or ethics, rarely do I say, I'm not Mother Teresa. I'm much more likely to say, I'm not that joker out on the corner selling drugs. And when I see that joker on the corner selling drugs, I'm like, man, thank God I'm not like that guy, but by the grace of God. And what I'm really saying is, I'm so glad I'm better than that guy. That makes me so much better. You can say ouch. I know hallelujah and amen aren't always the things we want to say. <laughs> ouch is quite all right. Now let me say, you know, there's a, a thing that we do when we watch the media and we see the rich and famous fall. There's something that happens inside of us, often happens inside of us. No respect, no disrespect to, to Tiger Woods at all. Several weeks ago, Tiger Woods was arrested for a DUI. And what came out of my mouth was, oh, it's just terrible. That's, that's awful. I feel so bad for him. But if I'm honest about it, and some of us, if we're honest about it, there was, there was a part of us that took pleasure in his demise. Ouch. What's up with that? What's wrong with me that I would see his demise and say to myself, he might have majors, he might have endorsements, he might have money, he might have that fine house in Windermere, but look at how jacked up his life is. What am I doing? Why do I do that? Why do I feel the need to say, at least I'm not as bad as he is ethically, what's wrong with me? I'm suffering from self-righteousness and the placebo effect of it. Another problem with the Pharisee's attitude is 
he says, you know, I thank you that I'm not like extortioners and adulterers or even this tax collector. His righteousness drives him away from others, particularly those that are not like him. Ouch. And that's what self-righteousness does. Godly righteousness draws us to the outcasts, to those outside of God's salvation. The Pharisee's problem wasn't just that he was dismissive of the tax collector. It was that he ignored his own need for God's mercy and forgiveness. And in ignoring his own need, he couldn't have compassion on the tax collector. The grace that I've received should turn into grace given to others. When I think about the fact that God rescued me from where I was. Now, don't get me wrong. I've been in church since I was six weeks old and know all the hymns and all that. I, I, I get all that. But I've had seasons in my life where I had lost my ever-loving mind. I was ridiculous. And God snatched me by the back of my neck and caused me to stand and forgave me. And when I look at what God has done in my life, what ought to happen is my heart is broken when I see someone who has not experienced that grace. The grace I've received should turn into grace given. And the separation that's caused by self-righteousness manifests itself in many ways in our country, whether it be social issues or political issues. We're so sure that we are right about our stance on a social issue or our stance on a political issue that we're not even interested in hearing the other side. We go into an echo chamber. I make sure that everything I hear is what I already believe. So if I'm conservative, I will limit myself to conservative news sources, to conservative commentators, to conservative radio shows. And if I'm more liberal, I'll make sure I YouTube every liberal station, every liberal talk show, and listen to liberal radio. Because I'm right. Let's say you are right. Let's say it's true that you're right and they're wrong. Why is your heart, why is my heart, not grieving that they're wrong? Why do I instead take pleasure in everything that shows me that I'm right? Ah, yeah, I know, I know. I'm not the only one, am I? No, no, Pastor Reggie, you're not the only one. Thank you. <laughs> Well, let's look at the second symptom of the placebo effect. The first symptom is this righteousness by comparison. The second symptom of this placebo effect is verse 12. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, let me be very clear. Tithing and fasting are good. They're good works. And the Pharisee would be right to thank God for the strength to perform these acts. The problem is that he's using them as if God should be impressed or that God should give him a silver star.
The bigger problem though, and this is really the second symptom, is that the Pharisee is seeking righteousness through selective works. Righteousness through selective works. What do I mean? I mean, why pick these two behaviors? Why not others? Actually, Jesus called the Pharisees out on this very thing earlier in the book of Luke. In Luke chapter 11, verse 42, Jesus says, but woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. In other words, sure, when it comes to giving, you've got it down, but there's some pretty big things called justice and love that you don't do. So it's righteousness by selective works. In other words, I pick the things that I can do that are perhaps easier for me to do and I ignore the other things. In self-righteousness, we're quick to bring up the sins we don't do and conveniently ignore the ones that we do. The things that are easy for us. Now, the truth of the matter is, is that as I've gotten older, there are certain sins and temptations that were a big deal for me 10 years ago that are not a big deal for me anymore. And so now, on this side of the temptation, where it doesn't really have that much sway over me, I'm like, what's wrong with you? Why can't you get yourself together? Or for some of us, it's not just that we're older, it's that we don't have a particular weakness. So for me, addiction is not a weakness. I could just choose addiction as my, as the sin I don't do. I'm not addicted to drugs, not addicted to alcohol. I don't have that. And all those people that do, man, that's ridiculous. Well, what about the sins that you do? How about those? I don't know, like talking about people when they're not there. Isn't that gossip? Isn't that backbiting? Ugh. Yes, it is. And for me to ignore those things shows me that I'm suffering from the symptoms of the placebo effect of self-righteousness. And here is the failure of this placebo. Self-righteousness is supposed to get us right with God, but it doesn't do that. It does make us feel better about ourselves, but we are still in the same danger we were before. In fact, we're worse off because we stop seeking treatment. When you're taking a placebo and you think you're healed, you no longer look for treatment for your problem. And so once I have adopted self-righteousness as my treatment plan, I'm no longer looking for a way to actually be right because I feel like I am. And so in fact, I'm now worse off than before. So what is the other prescription instead of self-righteousness? Well, let's take a look at verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, 
a sinner. If self-righteousness is the placebo, then the true cure that we see the tax collector take is humility and confession. The cure to our sin sickness is humility. Look at what he does. He stands at a distance. It's as if he came into the sanctuary and stayed at the back door underneath the exit sign because he didn't feel worthy to come to the altar, if you will. You know, it's interesting, both the Pharisee and the tax collector distance themselves. The Pharisee distances himself from the tax collector out of arrogance. But the tax collector out of humility and even shame distances himself from the worthiness of God. And then not just does he act in a humble way, but he confesses. He acknowledges his need. He says, have mercy on me. He acknowledges his status. He says, have mercy on me, a sinner. He owns his sin. Amen, somebody. He doesn't blame it on someone else. My father wasn't there to raise me right. My boss treats me so unfairly. My husband did it first. He doesn't blame it on someone else. He owns his condition. He says, I need mercy. And so often our prayers, instead of sounding like the tax collector, our prayers sound like this. God have mercy on them. They've been so ridiculous to me. There's nothing wrong with praying for God to have mercy on them, but there is something wrong not acknowledging that you need mercy too. Amen. This is the picture of humility, what the tax collector does. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Let's take a look at verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The word justified means to be made right, to be made righteous. And the tax collector was justified. At the end of the day, both men wanted it. They both wanted to be right. They both wanted to be right before God. The Pharisee thought he was already there. He just needed his ticket punched. The tax collector knew he wasn't and was willing to ask for it. We find righteousness in acknowledging our brokenness and not denying it. And let me, let me say something to us. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be right. Nothing wrong with wanting to be right. You aren't the only one who want you, wants you to be right. In fact, God wants you to be right. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That's what we know. That's what Jesus shows us in justifying the tax collector. You can be made right. I can be made right. I need to be made right. You need to be made right. But instead of making ourselves right, we need to accept the justification that comes from God and God alone. It's the difference between proving I'm right and being made right. 
When Jesus died on the cross and gave his life for us, his righteousness then became our righteousness once we accept that gift. We get credit for his righteousness. And not only does it give us credit, but it changes us. And that's even better news. Listen, this is not just about salvation. There are parts of my life that aren't right. There are parts of your life that aren't right. There are parts of my life that I try to justify as not being that bad. There are parts of your life that you try to justify as not being that bad. There are parts of my life and your life that we continue to stumble over time and time again, and we need God to make those parts of our life right. The question is, will we insist on making ourselves right or will we allow God to make us right? Because when he makes me right, some of the things I, I'm used to doing, I won't want to do anymore. When he makes me right, some of the places I like to go, I won't want to go anymore. When he makes you right, some of the ways that you talk, you won't want to talk that way anymore. When he makes you right, the way that you give, you won't want to give that way anymore. Do you want to be made right? Do you want him to make you right? Do you want him to change you? Because he stands ready. He is looking for us to present ourselves to him in humility and confession. In a moment, we're going to come to the altar for communion. And Jesus is calling you and me. He's calling us to come and receive his forgiveness. He's calling us to put on his righteousness. He has given us this table to regularly remind us that we don't have to depend on our own righteousness. I don't have to go to the placebo of self-righteousness. I don't have to compare myself to others. I don't have to try to justify myself one way or another. I just simply need to come and say, God, you've got it. I want to be made right. Do you? Amen. Amen. Pray with me. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are willing to make us right. We're so grateful that you have given us a true cure to sin. We're so glad, Lord God, that you can remind us and alert us when we're suffering under the placebo effect of self-righteousness. I pray, Lord, that you would, would begin doing that in our hearts even right now. Even if you want to remind us, Lord God, of where we've been this past week and help us to see where we need to repent, where we need to change. And as we move forward, Lord God, whenever we hear one of those tapes playing in our head, I pray, God, that we would come to you in confession and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. In Jesus' name, amen.